You're listening to That's the Industry Podcast, episode number eight. Today, we are talking about entertainment lawyers. We're talking when you need one, why you need one, and how important they are to your career in the entertainment industry. Coming up. You're listening to That's the Industry with Thomas Jordan. That's the Industry with Thomas Jordan. The podcast that takes you inside all the aspects of the entertainment industry. Directly from the people who are making it happen. And now, your host, Thomas Jordan. What's going on, everyone? Thomas Jordan here with another episode. Today, we are talking to Gordon Firemark. Gordon is an entertainment lawyer and digital entrepreneur. He has been practicing for 28 years now and represented anywhere anybody from producers to on-camera talent. Gordon, how's it going, man? Hi, Thomas. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I definitely appreciate you taking your time out. Now, being an entertainment lawyer, uh, especially in the entertainment industry, how did you get into it? Well, you know, I came to uh, law late in my in my plans. I uh, got involved in theater as a as a kid, and um, mainly behind the scenes and running sound and lights in high school theater. Started college with that being the intention. I was going to be a theater guy, and uh, shifted over into radio, TV, and film in my sophomore year of college. Studying that, uh, it was both a production and a business management policy and management kind of a program. And uh, it was in my senior year in that program, sort of finished up with my major early, and uh, I was taking some of the graduate level courses on government regulation of the media and things like that. And a professor pulled me aside one day and said, hey, you're, you know, you're top of the class in this graduate level program and, and you're nailing it. You should think about going to law school. And uh, I fell down on the floor laughing. And when I got up, I thought about it. <laughs> 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 I've had friends who are lawyers before and I've read or they've brought books back and it's almost like a foreign language. And I remember him saying, he's like, unless you love it, like you're probably not going to make it. So like what drew you to it? You know, it's, it's an intellectual exercise, I guess you could say of understanding everything in a historical context. And, uh, you know, what I love about it is helping people, uh, realize their dreams and create something special for the public to share and, uh, you know, and not getting screwed while they're doing it. And there's so many different forms of law. So what, I guess, leaned you towards entertainment? Was it because you had, you know, the theater and broadcasting background? Yeah, for me, it was entertainment first law second. And so it was always going to be entertainment law. In fact, that was really a challenge for me when I was looking for a job my uh, last year of law school and, and uh, right out of school. Uh, nobody was going to hire me to work for an insurance company or anything like that, you know, to do insurance defense or accident cases because they knew based on my resume, as soon as I saw something entertainment related, I was going to be making a jump. And uh, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> do you remember your first client? I do. Uh, it was sort of a weird case. And that's part of why I remembered. I was working for a, a law firm, um, a small law firm run by uh, uh, a very well-respected litigation attorney. I was doing litigation, which is not my thing. I don't dig the fighting and disputes, I'd much rather build deals and things. But at the time, I took this job working in litigation, and my first day on the job, this client came in, and he had been um, working for one of those uh, 976 phone numbers, you know, where they, the dial a psychic kind of line. And he was one of the psychics. And um, yeah, and ABC News had sent in uh, a, a reporter, in, uh, an intern wearing a cap with a camera to go work there, and she got a job as an intern in the in this 
phone center and she sort of interviewed surreptitiously all these people working there. And when the broadcast aired, they had edited things and taken things out of context and they really made our, our guy, it was a couple of different clients. Um, they made our guys really look bad. In fact, one of them, uh, his parents disowned him after seeing the broadcast. And so <laughs> that led to the very first lawsuit I ever filed as a lawyer. And, uh, that case, uh, I didn't actually stay at the firm long enough to see it through to the end, but the boss did very well by the clients and got them a big, uh, a big judgment and the jury, you know, punished ABC news a bit with that verdict as well. Is it one of those things where after you saw what happened and went through it, you were hooked or what kept you, what's kept you going this long? You know, I think it's a, a passion for the arts and, and the field of entertainment. You know, I, I love live theater. And so that's a big part of my practice, but, uh, uh, you know, to make a living in Hollywood, it's got to be film and TV as well. And I do a lot of stuff with digital media. So I sort of keep my interest going by by having lots of different areas that I like to focus on. And um, re but really, it's just, you know, being hanging out with creative people, working with creative people and uh, and uh, protecting them, I, you know, knight in shining armor kind of vibe going on there. And it just I like to help people. When would you say somebody, whether they're an on-air talent, if they're a producer, if they're behind the camera, in front of the camera, when does somebody need an entertainment lawyer? I would say earlier rather than later. You know, anytime you're going to be signing a contract, you want to make sure you really, really understand what that contract is. And it, it may seem really simple on its face, but there's stuff in there. You know, oftentimes the left hand gives and the right hand takes away. And uh, so even when you're signing with a manager or an agent, uh, if you're getting into collaborations with people or, you know, signing even for, you know, what seems like a regular job, uh, it makes sense to read that contract, really understand it. And, and if you can't understand it yourself, get a lawyer to help you understand and hopefully negotiate the terms out. So, um, yeah, I'd say earlier, most, most folks wait until they feel they can afford it. And my feeling is by the time they can afford it, they've already <laughs> sustained some of the damage that they could have saved by getting it, uh, some help early on. And do you walk through the legal jargon with the clients or how does that usually work? You know, some clients do want that and some don't. And I try to be sensitive to, you know, if you want me to just make the deal and get you to where you're ready to sign, then, you know, if I, if that's the understanding, then I won't bother you with all the little details. But if you are interested in knowing all the, all the details and really understanding, then I'll, I'll walk you through it, explain it. And what if somebody was like, you know, I just got this gig or whatever. I wanted to run this by you. What if, you know, especially if they're newer in the industry mm -hmm. and they didn't know really what to look for, but they were like, you know, I want to make sure I'm not getting screwed. Would you know what that meant? Or do they have to be kind of, do they have to be more specific? Well, you know, I can't give somebody any advice on their deal unless I'm reading the deal because, you know, I, I have to know what it says. And sometimes things get lost in translation. So my approach to that is if you want me to give you some advice then send me your contract, let's take a look at it. And, uh, and then we'll have a, we'll have a conversation about what it means and what your concerns are. Obviously if you have, if you have specific concerns, you let me know ahead of time so we can highlight those things and come up with solutions. I really view my work as, as problem solving, not just you know, <laughs> Hey, don't sign this. It sucks. That kind of thing doesn't really help. So, um, yeah, but I, I work with folks in the early stages of their careers all the time. If, you know, if they're willing to invest in, um, being safe and doing things right, then 
I can help. And what are some, do you have any like specific, uh, like problems that you solved? Cause you know, sometimes lawyers get a bad rap or whatever. Um, and I know you're one of the good guys. So what are some of the uh, problems that you've solved for clients? Well, you know, like I said, a lot of it is that right hand giving and left hand taking away things, you know, questions of who owns the output of things, who owns the, you know, your, even something as simple as your Twitter account. You know, you go to work at a broadcast station and they want to have some ability to control your Twitter account. And I've seen situations where the, the employer is actually wanting to claim ownership of it. Well, then you move on in three or four years and you can't have that same Twitter account. So you can't take your audience, your fans with you. That could be the kind of thing. Um, issues around your money and what's deducted and what's not deducted and when, how you get reimbursed for things, issues around, um, uh, you know, say you pitch a, a, a project or a story to your employers and they don't want to run with it. Are you free to go with it somewhere else after you leave or, or maybe even while you're still there? Uh, those kinds of things come up a lot when signing with management or, or, or agent representation, there are lots of things about mostly with the managers that, and they're not all bad. Believe me, there's some great managers out there, but there's plenty of them out there who are really looking to take advantage of somebody who feels that they can help them get a job. And, um, and, uh, you know, really that manager is just as interested in his own interests as, as the clients. And so we want to make sure they're looking out for their own interests and not double dipping. Sometimes the managers are also an employer in this industry. And so they shouldn't be taking a commission on the earnings that they pay you as their employee, <laughs> that kind of thing. So lots of nuance. And if somebody came to you, like, you know, if somebody was approached by a manager and why, and wanted you to look over the contract, is that would you recognize those type of red flags where, you know, if the manager is trying to double dip or something shady is going on, obviously you would address that to them, correct? That, that is my job. Um, and, and really my approach in, in that scenario, usually it's not someone who is overtly trying to take advantage or get away with something. It's usually just that they have uh, put together a, a, a management contract or an engagement agreement of some sort that just doesn't come out and explicitly say, I won't do these things. And so my approach is let's, let's add these things into the contract. And I have, uh, you know, what I'll usually do is I'll write a letter or, or an addendum to the contract and say, let's attach this also. And then we end up, you know, haggling over the wording of things a little bit here and there. And we end up attaching it as a writer or just incorporating it into the contract itself. And do you find it kind of odd that like, I'm just now thinking about it, like, okay, like sometimes, you know, you say get in uh, with an entertainment lawyer earlier than later. You know, I think some people, when you, if they would come to you earlier, it'd be like, well, that's a little bit out of my price range. But then, you know, if I came to you and had the funds and I was worried about, you know, or not worried, but, um, like I wanted to make sure you cover your butt as far as this contract goes. And then they are worried about if you do read it and it is shady that they think that's their only shot. Now, what do they do? Do you feel like people are scared almost on both ends? If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, there is some of that. And, and I do every once in a while encounter someone who's just afraid to make waves or rock the boat. And unfortunately, you know, your bargaining power really comes from your willingness and ability to say no to a bad deal. And so that's usually the first thing I counsel them is, look, if you take a bad deal, then you get exactly what you deserve from it if things come out bad. And yeah, you know, it might work out fine, but you might really regret it later on. I'd rather personally be standing on the sidelines watching things go by and go wrong for somebody else than experiencing it firsthand because I, I didn't uh, I didn't take precautions going in. 
Would you say it's normal for artists or people in the entertainment industry to automatically be on the defense when it came to entertainment lawyers? I don't know. I mean, I think most of us mean well. <laughs> Our intentions are good. I think the lawyers that get a bad rap are the ones that are, you know, involved in litigation. They're doing the suing and, you know, nobody wants to be on the receiving end of of that lawsuit and nobody wants to have to hire a lawyer to defend them in a lawsuit, but uh, you know, when it comes time to do deals, look, we're all we're all here collaborating. We're building something bigger than any one of us. And as long as everybody comes to the party with that same uh, attitude, things work out really well. And, and uh, you know, I like to think of myself as part of a team, part of a family. Sometimes my clients are, you know, most of my clients are also good friends, people I, I care about. And I think they care about me too. Was there ever a time where you, you know, I know you've been in it almost 30 years. Has there ever been a time where you thought about hanging up the, hanging up the coat, hanging up the lawyer, the lawyer jacket or whatever you would call it? You mean today or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you look, there are parts of this that it, that aren't so much fun. You know, running any business, it is a business after all. And managing a law firm and being responsible for other people's deals and in a certain extent, their lives is uh, a lot of pressure. And so, yeah, I've thought about hanging it up. I've thought about going into other things. You know that I've got some other irons in the fire and I'm uh, trying to leverage my, my legal knowledge in ways that can help more people uh, for less without having to engage me as their lawyer. And, uh, yeah. So, you know, someday I will be able to do that and, and not need the practice in the background and, you know, be able to pick and I, I'm already able to pick and choose my clients pretty selectively. But, uh, you know, that's the dream is only take the ones that you really, really love to work with. And I know you probably hear this all the time where it's like it's out of my budget because for me personally, mm -hmm. when I think lawyer, I think I know there's going to be a not, not a down payment. What's the word I'm looking for? A retainer. retainer yeah. Um, and people automatically are just scared off by that. Like how, how do you explain that to people to not be scared of, or how do you kind of like talk them back just, you know, where they're not just blunt, like, Oh, your retainer is X amount of dollars. <laughs> well, you know, first of all, not every client pays in an advanced retainer. Sometimes it's an hourly rate. Sometimes it's a percentage of earnings. There are flexible ways of, of doing fee structures. Um, you know, I think that, you probably want to pay your lawyer something up front so you know you've got a lawyer who's going to be looking out for you and they've got the responsibility that comes with that. But, uh, you know, the, look, it doesn't do anybody any good to to charge so much that nobody wants to hire you, right? So, um, you know, the, the what you pay for lawyers is, it's a lot of money, right? We, we do charge uh, big, big dollar amounts on a per hour basis. But if I can accomplish something for you quickly, um, and efficiently, then it's probably worth it. And you need to think of it as an investment in your career, your business, your future, just like paying tuition to go to college is an investment in that future. Um, what, what gets me is that people will go out and spend, you know, a few hundred bucks, uh, at a bar, at a bar drinking and partying on a Saturday night, but you ask them to spend that few hundred bucks on a, a meeting with a lawyer to understand what their situation is. And it's a whole different angle on things. So, uh, it is an investment and it really is just part of, of, uh, the cost of doing business. The fact is if you're coming out to coming into a situation where you're going to be taking a job, that's going to pay you, you know, four figures, five figures, six figures, you know, paying a few hundred bucks or even a few thousand bucks to, to a lawyer to help you make sure that you actually do get paid and don't get screwed on things. Um, seems like a pretty good investment to me. 
No, I agree. I agree. And we've kind of been talking about people uh, coming to you, like if they're a producer or Mm -hmm. an on-air talent. Uh, What about, isn't, doesn't it work kind of the other way? Like, let's just say since I'm an on, uh, an on-camera talent, but I have this idea for a show, Mm -hmm. what, like, and I brought this to you, how, what would we do? Well, you may have just become a producer because you've got this idea and you're going to do something with it. You may be a writer and, you know, you selling the concept or getting hired to write the screenplay uh, for a, a film producer or, or whatever the, you know, the project is, you, you might get paid a development fee to develop it. And that's the kind of thing that producers do. So part of it for me is to be able to think about the, you know, look at all facets of the situation and see if we can figure out what the best approach there is. And do we need to set up a business structure? Do we need to set up a, you know, co-production with somebody else? All those kinds of things. So there are lots of different flavors of deals depending on, on the overall circumstances. And sort of what I like to do is is help uh, you know creative people to bridge that gap into the business side of things and and uh, and stay safe. And I'm just curious if um, if somebody came to you with the project, like let, would you instead of taking a retainer or actually like if they were light on cash. Mm-hmm. Do you think, given the project, would you ever take equity in the project over a payment? Equity in the project. There, there are some rules about lawyers not doing that, actually. So, you, oh, is there? Well, that, well yeah. let's go over that real quick. Well, you know, the basic thing is this: look, you know, you want your lawyer to be objective and impartial, and to give you um, the news, the advice whether it's good or bad. You don't want them thinking about their own interests. You want them thinking about what's good for you. If the if the lawyer is a partner in the project with you, has an equity stake in it, then that lawyer might have an interest in seeing the project go forward, even if maybe you're not going to get the best end of the deal after that. So uh, I, I'm hesitant about um, about taking equity in projects. It, it happens from time to time. I, I try not to do it too often. Uh, we do take percentages of clients' earnings, a commission, very much like an agent and manager might do. Um, and that's a little different because, you know, we'll still tell you, hey, this is not a not a good job. Don't take this one or don't do this or, or uh, you know, quit if it comes down to that. But, uh, you know, yeah, it is an extra factor in there. You don't want your lawyer to be your partner. You want your lawyer to be your lawyer. Is it possible to give me kind of like, I know some people um, don't really know what lawyers cost these days, especially in our industry. What would you say is a accurate range for somebody like yourself? So lawyers in the entertainment industry, I would say the range probably starts around $350 an hour. And uh, I know there are some lawyers out there charging well over a thousand bucks an hour. Uh, my own fees are in the middle of that, about 550, 575 bucks an hour, depending on what I'm doing. And, uh, uh, but that's just an hourly rate. You know, it's only a part of the equation. You also have to factor in how much time is this going to take? You know, if you want to hire a, a, a brand new, fresh out of law school lawyer to write up a, an option contract for your screenplay, uh, it's probably going to take them three or four hours. You want to hire me to do it. I've probably bang it out in an hour or less. So uh, that's a, a, a component of things. Now, what I try to do with my clients is rather than rely on that hourly rate is to make an estimate based on what I know the work is about to be. And um, and I'll make an estimate on that. And then I try to stick to it, you know, come up with a flat rate, pay this amount now, and I'll do all the work that's necessary. And that's becoming more and more common. Um, other approaches that lawyers sometimes take, as I mentioned, is that percentage, like 5% of your income from from the deals or from everything you do. Uh, 
not the waiting table jobs, but the, the entertainment industry stuff. And, uh, you know, sometimes there's hybrids where you pay a, a, a little cash fee as a, as a deposit and then an advance against that percentage fee or something like that. So we try to make it work. You know, if you, if you're strapped for cash, but you need a lawyer, talk to some lawyers and ask for some help and see what they can do. You might be surprised. If somebody has no idea, like this is their first time, mm-hmm. you know, um, trying to get an entertainment lawyer, even like somebody said, you need to talk to a lawyer, what type of questions should they ask so they can be more prepared? Well, I mean, I think, you know, do you offer a free consultation is a fair question to ask early on um, and and use that free consultation if it's offered as a as a as well effectively as you can you this is really a get to know you kind of a thing is this somebody i feel like i can work with that i can trust who will do right by me and so on so you ask the questions you would ask about anybody you're hiring how much experience with this kind of thing do you have have you ever worked with these people on the other side before um or these lawyers on the other side also might be a factor uh, do you have any references Ask them, you know, who are some of your other satisfied clients? They're never going to send you the dissatisfied ones, but but it's worth asking. Um, and, you know, I would do as much research in advance, read up on the person, uh, check out their websites, check out what they've written for the, the legal trades as well as the blogs and things. And, you know, do your due diligence, find out who you're dealing with. And it's okay to interview more than one lawyer. Like you, I'm very kind of protected of my on-camera talent uh, people too. Uh, what are some red flags to look for if you know if they start consulting lawyers? And I know you kind of mentioned that some charge upwards, you know, anywhere between a hundred and a thousand dollars an hour. Are there red flags to look for? I think you have to well go with your gut a little bit. There are some red flags. I mean, if you're if you walk into an office and it's pretty clear that this lawyer uh, who says he's an entertainment lawyer also does criminal defense and car accident cases and family law and wills and trusts. Uh, that's probably not somebody who really is that knowledgeable or immersed in entertainment stuff. I'm not saying that, that, that there aren't people who do all these things well, but you know, focus on somebody who's really up to their elbows in the entertainment stuff, in the stuff that you're doing, they will know the deals. They will know the people, they will understand the, the parameters and you don't end up asking for things that are completely out of whack. Uh, every once in a while, I see a, a novice lawyer come into an equation and start asking for things that every entertainment lawyer knows is absolutely standard, and we don't we don't need to negotiate that. It's this is the way it's done, and um, you know once we see that coming, we you know, let's face it, our, my job is to look out for my client's best interests. So uh, I'll, I won't say I'll take advantage of it, but I'm going to certainly uh, angle my discussions and things in a way that you know <laughs> gets my client the best deal possible. And that's our job. Once again, somebody new just uh, looking for an entertainment lawyer. What, and if you had to give them one piece of advice when they're searching for one, what would you say the most important thing uh, is? Well, you know, don't just hit Google. And I mean, I'm fortunate I show up pretty high in the Google rankings, but I really think it's better if you if you know people in the industry, ask them. I need a lawyer. Who can you can you recommend anybody? Who do you know? If you've got an agent or a manager. Uh, ask them for a referral. Uh, you don't have to go with the person they refer, but it's a good starting point. Ask, um, you know, ask around. Look, if you're if you're in L.A. in Hollywood, you can't spit on the sidewalk without hitting somebody in the industry. So you might as well ask the valet at the parking garage. Hey, do you know a good entertainment lawyer? <laughs> ask around and get some referrals. And um, if you hear the same name two or three times, I think that's a really good indicator. 
we've kind of talked about, you know, you being an entertainment lawyer, but uh, in the beginning, I also talked about you also being a digital entrepreneur as well. Well, you know, I, I, part of my work is in, in the podcasting space as a, as a lawyer in new media, I really love helping uh, creators of content and that includes podcasters and YouTube video creators and so on. And so uh, I have uh, created a bunch of products and services specifically tailored at that audience, uh, forms and templates and contract kinds of things that those folks can use. And uh, uh, if you go over to uh, podcastlawforms.com, you can find out some about that. I also have uh, uh, similar products and services for digital entrepreneurs, people who create courses and, and uh, digital content uh, information products, those kinds of things. And uh, yeah, so my entrepreneurial angle is to offer courses and, and you know, uh, templates and documents that they can use and save themselves having to hire a lawyer every time they've got a small transaction. If you're producing a small film or, or a podcast or something like that and you need to incorporate a piece of content from somebody else, I can get you the license agreement. You don't have to hire me for hundreds of dollars an hour. And I know in your courses, you kind of talk about, especially with like podcasters and YouTubers and anybody who's creating their own content. I know you go really in depth with, with things like trademarks, for instance. Yeah. So, you know, part of entertainment law is intellectual property. I would say it's the, it's the stock in trade in what entertainment law is. And the entertainment business really is a business of intellectual property, copyrights and trademarks to a certain extent, patents, although that's very specialized stuff, uh, you know, and, and all the contracts that we do have a lot to do with those things, copyrights and trademarks. So, uh, yeah, part of what I try to do is, is teach people the, the, the fundamentals of how you create and own and, and exploit things that are intellectual property. So copyrights for uh, writers and authors and creators and trademarks for business owners tend to be the big issues there. We're talking about, you know, creatives, especially in podcasting and with podcasting be su being such a huge platform right now. Yeah. Um, and I know in one of your courses, you, and we'll probably link, we'll definitely link to it below, but uh, can you tell us about, you know, if you're going to have a guest on your podcast, how important it is to have them sign some form of a release form. This is my crusade, Thomas. I am, uh, I, I get into arguments online with people about this all the time. I think it's absolutely essential that if you're having a guest on your show, uh, whether it's a podcast or, you know, even though you, if you're doing a YouTube kind of a thing or whatever, anybody who you have appearing in your content, you better have their permission, preferably in writing to capture their performance, their appearance, and to use it in any way, shape, and form you want in any media from now until the universe comes to an end. <laughs> you know, uh, you don't want to be in a situation where you've got this great footage and you want to include it in something other than the episode you created. You want to do a compilation episode. You want to do a, maybe you're going to turn something into a book or, or a film or documentary or something. You want to be able to do all those things without having to go back and ask for permission later. Plus, when you don't have it in writing, um, that consent that's given might be uh, might be revocable. So, uh, in fact, I've seen situations where a guest on a podcast goes on, does their whole thing, a year, two years goes by, and they're now no longer happy with the person who ran the podcast. And so they say, hey, take that episode down. I don't want my name anywhere on your website. And uh, one of those cases actually turned into uh, uh, many tens of thousands of dollars in litigation uh, that would have been spared if if the podcaster had used a release in the first place. So please use a release. And I offer a free one. 
over at podcastrelease.com. Anybody who uh, is having guests on their on their stuff, use that release and and uh, and play it safe. Podcastrelease.com. Yeah, and I'll definitely look, uh, have it uh, in the show notes below. But it's just, it blows my mind how that's even possible. Because like you wouldn't, you know, because it especially for my podcast, uh, and I've downloaded it, it's great. And I'll, and I'll be perfectly honest with you. I mean, I'm seven episodes. I have not yeah. used it yet. Uh-huh. And I know I need, I know I need to because... Yeah, I just, for somebody to do that, like, because I can see how friendships go bad, relationships go bad, whether they don't like, whatever, like, I get that. But for them, and I get them being spiteful, but it's like, how would they even prove that? Like, how do you even take that to court when you're obviously there? Like, the intros that, like, you're having a conversation, you're obviously on this person's Mm -hmm. show. How in the world do they prove that? Or how do they argue against it? All they have to do is come in and say, you know what? I don't want that episode up anymore. I am hereby withdrawing my consent to appear on your show. Take it down. And unless you can say, well, I have a signed document that says I have irrevocable, indefinite, perpetual rights, you're going to have a problem. Um, So, you know, that's exactly what happened in that case. I was telling you about them for my client. And um, yeah, unfortunately, you know, unlike in, in the broadcasting business, you know, TV and radio, um, someone comes as a, you know, gets interviewed on a news news show. It, it happens, it's broadcast, maybe it repeats for a couple of news cycles and then it's gone. It's ephemeral. And so people don't have the same hurt feelings and anger and, and resentments that build up. If you're, if you've got a podcast episode, it's available online every day for the rest of time, basically. And, uh, uh, people might just decide, I don't want that. So unfortunately the, the burden of proof is, uh, is pretty easily satisfied by the plaintiff saying, well, I, I withdrew my consent and it's still there. And I could see people with ego fighting <laughs> right back. So let's right. just say that happens and they're like, no, I'm not taking it down. What are you going to do? Sue you. Like I said, and they I mean, call you, right? <laughs> well, sometimes. Yeah. I've seen it from both sides. I'll tell you that. Now, normally do they get a warning shot? Like you kind of get like, if they decide to go that route um, and you don't take it down, would you say that that person would get like something like a cease and assist, cease and desist? Yeah, that's usually the, you know, look, you can hire me to, well, I don't do litigation, but you can hire a lawyer to file a lawsuit tomorrow if you want to. There are many instances where, you know, what's in the best interest of everybody is, hey, let's call them up and ask them to stop. Or, hey, let's send them a letter and ask them to stop. And, you know, rather than spending $20,000, you spend $1,000 to have a lawyer write that letter and then the, the problem ends. It's only when it doesn't end at the letter stage that you need to go forward with that litigation. So, yeah, I think most of the time you'll see uh, a warning shot. You know, look, my, my general advice to people is if somebody's done something that you don't like and is using your name, voice, likeness, your, your content or whatever – uh, without your permission, step one is just reach out to them, you know, informally and say, hey, would you mind taking that down? And, um, you know, try not to be confrontational about it. If it becomes confrontational, that's when you call your lawyer. Eventually, at some point, I just, I mean, I feel like it's almost inevitable. So I, <laughs> I de- and I have it. I just, it's my fault for not using it. But it's, you know like, what? I definitely. My advice on that is, is really this is, you know, if it's uncomfortable to put a piece of paper in front of somebody, and, and I understand, especially in, in this world where we're doing everything online and whatever, you know, set up a web form or, or when you book your, you have your calendar booking form, 
just have the consent lines in there and that they check a box and, and type their name in or something like that. That counts as a contract. And so if you use the right language, like the language from my free release, um, and put it into that web form, I think you've got the evidence you need if it ever comes to be an issue. And if it ever was an issue and just to kind of wrap, uh, wrap up on this just a little bit, but it's like, okay, you know, somebody wasn't pleased with my interview, but they signed the release and their lawyer contacted me. I would literally just send them the release form and that's it. Well, yeah. I mean, let, let's, let's also be realistic about things. You know, you fighting with it over this kind of stuff. If you've got an episode that isn't super important and you're not wrapped up in journalistic integrity because you're telling a particular story and now you're going to be undermined in the next six episodes because you don't no longer have that one for foundation or something like that. You know, maybe in some instances, discretion is a better part of valor and you take it down because you want to preserve the relationship. You want to maintain good relations with the, the community and at large rather than being that guy who uh, who's stuck by his guns and oh, I've got a contract. I'm going to keep it up there. Um, you know, if it doesn't hurt to take it down, maybe you do. But it's nice to have the option rather than be sort of have your hand forced because you didn't get a release signed. What about uh, using music as far as like people in podcasts and I see it in YouTube all the time? Yeah. So YouTube actually has a library of music that they have pre-licensed and they've made a bunch of deals. And a lot of times the monetization, uh, a portion of the money flow is actually siphoned off to the music owners in the podcasting space. That's not the case. We don't have, um, we don't have any blanket licensing of anything in podcasting. And it's really hard. If you want to use pop music in, in a podcast, you're talking about four stop shopping for, at least for the licenses you need, because you've got both a download and a stream of a musical composition and a recording of that musical composition. And those are owned by different people. So you've got four licenses from two different copyright holders at least. And, um, and then you've got organizations like ASCAP and BMI in the mix too. So it, it gets very complicated, very fast. My advice is if you're doing a podcast, don't use pop music unless you've, you know, <laughs> unless you're real close pals with the artist and they've made all the deals happen for you. And what happens like if people don't hear this and they just don't know they do it anyway, which I'm sure it'll yep. happen. Uh, what have you seen happen? Well, the DMCA takedown is the is the probably the simplest thing that happens. And that's where the owner of the copyrighted material says to whoever it is that's hosting the content online. Hey, that's ours. They're not they don't have permission. Take it down. And in order to avoid being sued themselves, those hosting companies have to take it down right away within 24 hours of receiving that notice. And then you, the, the person who posts the content gets a notice and you can counter notify. And then if, if they disagree with the counter notice that, you know, maybe there's an argument of fair use or something like that, then you end up having to fight it out in court. So, uh, mostly what happens as you've seen this on YouTube, right? YouTube will take down a video pretty quickly. If somebody complains, um, uh, you know, it gets taken down and it's too much trouble to try to get it put back up. So, um, so that's the solution. But you know, the, the problem is that you, we have these three strike kinds of rules. So if you're hosting your, your podcast on, I don't know, SoundCloud or some particular hosting company, um, and they get three complaints about stuff rather than ha continuing to have to take your episodes down, they're going to say, that's it. You're done. You're no longer hosted on our service. And that can be real. Not on, not only embarrassing, it can be expensive and, and a hassle to, try to find someone else to host you and that kind of thing. So just don't do it. You mentioned fair use. What is fair use? So fair use is a, uh, it, it's now a part of the copyright act. Uh, it's a defense essentially to 
infringement of copyright claims of infringement of copyright that applies to a very well first of all it only applies in the united states because we have freedom of speech and press first amendment stuff here in the u.s but this exception or this defense is a four-factor analysis that we look at that way i don't want to get too far down into the weeds with the factors but it weighs the the nature and the purpose of the use and the impact it has on the market and how how it relates to the other use and how much you've taken and all that and so this is where a lot of the misconceptions well i only used a few seconds of the music uh, or I'm using it for educational purposes. Those are misconceptions that arise from the kinds of factors that we have to consider in fair use. I'll say that it's probably more expensive to fight about whether it's a fair use than it would have been to get the license for the music in the first place. So, uh, you know, by the time you get to argue about it, you're standing in front of a judge in a courtroom. I'm just curious if <laughs> what happens if you don't show up? Like then, you, let's just say I could, I could see it and I'm sure it's happened before where yeah. there's a huge disagreement. There's, you know, uh, cease and desist letters going out like, and somebody's just like, you know what? I got nothing to lose. I'm not showing up. Yeah. Now what? So the way it works is this, you know, if I follow, if, well, if, if we do the cease and desist and you don't respond or you, or you just ignore me or thumb your nose at me, then I file a lawsuit. I go to court and I say, Hey, this person needs to be told to pay me this much money and, and told to stop doing these things. And then we file that complaint and then we have the, the court will order us to serve it on the defendant, which is the process service that you hear about. Right. Uh, assuming that I'm, I, I get you served, which is delivering you a copy of this complaint, either in hand or sometimes by mail or even sometimes by publishing it in a newspaper. Once you have notice of that suit, you've got 30 days to show up in court and say, I deny it or, or you know, file an answer to that complaint. If you don't do that, you lose the suit and the case is over, the judgment against you. And, uh, you know, we go against your bank accounts. We go try to collect the money from your house. We do all kinds of nasty lawyer tricks. This is where lawyers get a bad rap, right? Um, and that sort of hap can happen any step along the way. If you don't show up for a court hearing, the judge can order you. Usually they give you a couple of warnings, but the judge can say, that's it. Case is over. You lose. And so, uh, no, no, you got to take it seriously if, if this stuff comes in your face. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, and I'm get, do they issue a warrant out for your arrest too or what? Not usually in a in a civil case because the the terminating sanction that that ruling against you is usually enough uh, punishment I guess you could say in in criminal cases and traffic citations not showing up for court yeah they issue a bench warrant and, and send out the sheriff to go pick you up um, in in the civil case it's just you know you 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 might find out about it when the sheriff comes to the bank and says hey the contents of this account deliver <laughs> and the bank hands over your money to the to the bad to the other side. You know, that's intense. And I'm sure you've seen that happen more than once. Oh, yeah. As far as when you start, you know, you we've been talking about, you know, creatives on especially in the digital space, the podcasters, the YouTubes, how important would you say it is to form an LLC rather than just going with it under your personal name? I'm a pretty strong advocate of forming an entity for anybody who is going to be making content as their business or as a, an important part of their business, because you want to keep the assets of your of your business and the risks and liabilities of your business separate from your personal stuff. Now, if you're in a stage of starting out where you just don't have a lot of personal assets to protect, then it might be OK to what we call it going naked, you know, for a while. Um and just sort of take that chance. But, you know, as soon as you start to make some money, that's when things start to happen and people start to come out of the woodwork and, and uh, take 
pot shots at you. And by then it might be a little too late to, to do very much about it. And it's always easier to, to get that entity started up early in the starting up of a business rather than after it's been up and running for a while, transferring everything into the company. Uh, so, you know, if, if, if you can afford it and, and, uh, the business seems to be something that's going to going to go that you're taking seriously. Yeah. Form an LLC. I think it's important. Sometimes a corporation is better, but LLC is the usual one these days. And you say it's better to do it sooner than later. And uh, why is that? You want to get everything into the company early on. Anything that, they, that you do as an employee of your company belongs to the company, not to you individually. And uh, so it just it keeps it under one roof more simply, more easily. There's all kinds of other reasons to form these entities. There's tax advantages. There's risk and liability uh, management and control. If you've got partners and team members, then forming an entity is a good way to uh, allocate ownership and responsibilities as well as show people's investments in the company. If you want to sell um, membership in the, or, or stock essentially in the company to get revenue not to get revenue to get capital for the company's operations that's another reason so lots of good reasons to do it it does have a cost you know setting up a, an org, a company might be a couple of thousand bucks by the time you're done with all the legal and filing fees and things like that and then you've got another legal person in the eyes of the state who has to pay taxes and that's going to vary from state to state here in california it's exorbitant it's 800 bucks minimum uh just to just to, for the privilege of having comma llc at the end of your name and would you recommend people uh, who try to form LLCs pay somebody to set everything up for them or go down the rabbit hole of trying to do it themselves? You know, these are things that can be done yourselves or you can go online to some of those services that have, you know, Zoom or Rocket or things like that in their name. And, and you know, that that works to a certain extent and, you know, for, for very plain vanilla stuff. I think it's fine, although you still have to be really careful and pay attention to what's going on. I've heard horror stories about the wrong papers being filed in the wrong office in the state. And then now the, the, you know, the banking commissioner wants to talk to you, those kinds of crazy things. I sort of liken those services, those online services to, you know, you're walking down the street and there's a box at about head height and underneath there's a hole in the bottom of the box. And on the side of the box, it says haircuts, $1. Are you going to stick your head in that hole? You might get a great haircut. You might lose an ear. You know, you're going to take your chances. I sort of feel like it's that way with with forming these entities online too. So I would rather you hire a lawyer and do it and get it done right and know you know you sleep well at night knowing that it's done right and um, usually it gets done more quickly and efficiently and uh, you know you're just going to encounter less trouble. I think. Do you have an opinion on legal zoom? Um, well, they're one of the ones I was talking about, right? And uh, you know, I, I think they're fine. I mean, they're, it's it's run by a lawyer and started, I should say, founded by a lawyer. And I think they have, you know, good people working there. Uh, I think that anytime you try to put something like that online, you're doing lowest common denominator work. And, and uh, you know, you can't always fit a square peg in a round hole that way. And so there are some situations where it's fine and, and somewhere I don't think it is. It's, it, that's the haircut for a dollar scenario. Yeah, because I mean, it's almost it almost seems like an oxymoron because I've been on LegalZoom before and I get it for like smaller things, but a lot of those forms and even though they're labeled, like yeah. it was just I, I was looking, you know, me personally, I was looking, I was like, okay, I'm gonna do this myself. Yeah. And then I was like, okay, I'm gonna ask everybody around me what they did. And I got right. ten different answers from ten different people. Yeah. And it's like, you know, and then the horror stories started coming out and I was like, you know what? 
uh, like you're just going to have to bite the bullet because yeah. it's just not, I don't know. It's just not because you're looking at legal documents that you don't know what they mean. Yeah. They're just labeled like, Oh, do this with that. But yeah. if something went down, you're like, Oh, I got this form. Mm-hmm. I would bet nine times out of 10, it's the wrong form or something has been filled out incorrectly yeah. or you didn't f- cross it to your dot and I or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, in fairness, I'm the guy standing in a glass house throwing stones because I do sell online templates and forms as well. Uh, but I, you know, I, I try to give good instructions and I try to you know be available when people have a question. I don't think that these other these big services uh, necessarily are able to stand behind their product quite that same way. Yeah, and I kind of want to talk about your digital courses as well, because I know you're all about yep. protecting and helping and, you know, um, creatives like myself. Uh, can you talk about your digital course that you're building right now? I'm actually not in the midst of building one. I have I have a couple sort of in the <laughs> in the uh, uh, in the works in the archive, I should say. Uh, the, the one I think you're thinking of is the Digital Entrepreneurs Legal and Business Toolkit. And it is a combination of a bunch of templates and forms along with uh, a lot of lessons and instruction on those kinds of things we talked about. Copyrights, trademarks and uh uh, contracts and how to write contracts yourself do you know how to do a lot of this kind of stuff yourself and uh, it's uh, it's available for folks that are in this digital space and and looking to do more there's a similar product for podcasters and the business and legal toolkit for entrepreneurs is at toolkit.gordonfiremark.com and you're and just to be clear you're showing people how to do it themselves or uh, do you also offer a done for you type of uh, deal as well well, the done for you service is, is through my law firm. You can reach out to me at firemark.com and, uh, and hire me as your lawyer if you want to do that. Awesome, man. All right. Well, uh, I'm, like I said, that's, I, I appreciate your time. And if there's anything else you wanted to add, feel free to. No, I just, you know, invite listeners to come on over to gordonfiremark.com, which is sort of the clearinghouse for everything that I have. Uh, and uh, the law firm is at firemark.com, but uh, gordonfiremark, that's F-I-R-E-M-A-R-K.com is probably the best place to go to find out more about me and what I do. And talking about YouTube and podcast, man, <laughs> you have a podcast as well. Let's talk about yeah, it. My, Tell us where we can find your podcast and what it's about and who you serve. Yeah. My podcast is called entertainment law. I have a couple of them, but the, the one that I've been at the longest is entertainmentlawupdate.com, And uh, it is a uh, monthly summary of legal cases and news and uh, commentary on the field of entertainment law and what's going on in the world. And uh, I have a co-host out of the Dallas area and she and I get together and do this recording. We've been doing it now for coming up on 11 years and uh, having a great time doing it. So uh, entertainmentlawupdate.com. What about more, better, faster? Well, since you asked, (laughs) (laughs) my other show is more, better, faster, and it's really about achieving more, better, faster. It's sort of success strategies and tips and, and that kind of thing for folks in the, in the creative industries, but really anybody who wants to just do better with their life. Uh, I really am talking about sort of the mindset and philosophy of things as much as practical strategies to accomplishing more. But uh, my goal really in, in everything I do is to help creative people accomplish more of their goals uh, in a faster, better way. So more, better, faster dot media. 
All right, that does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate it. And I would love your help. This podcast is brand new, so I need all the help I can get. If you would, just subscribe to the podcast, leave a five-star rating. I really, really would appreciate it. And last but not least, I got a little something for you. For the last 10 years, I have been writing, shooting, producing, editing my own video to get my dream job as an entertainment reporter in Los Angeles interviewing the stars. Now, that might not be your dream, but if you are in this industry and you are in this field, you are going to need to learn how to write, shoot, and edit, produce your own content. And now I want to personally train you on these skills so you can create your own journey and make money while doing so. So what I want you to do now is log on to Facebook and request to be in my private Facebook group, On Camera Professionals. Once again, it is called On Camera Professionals. But wait, Thomas, I really like your stuff. I really want to learn from you, but I don't want to be on camera. Don't worry. I got you covered. In this group, I'm going to be doing a live training, so that means live tips and tricks. I'm going to do giveaways, freebies, and I'm also going to do personalized training. So once again, log on to Facebook and type in On Camera Professionals, and I'll see you there.